Hello and welcome to Pale Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wabo's most ritualistic work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold. And I'm Jade of the Octopus Literary Podcast. Welcome, Jade. Welcome to the show. Um, Thank so you. people will uh, know some of your work from talking about Pact, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I run a YouTube channel where I just finished covering Pact over 18 weeks. It was originally supposed to be about eight weeks, but Pact is pretty long. Um, you've Listeners may have seen that showing up <laughs> on the subreddit for a couple of months now. So, Yeah. Yeah, basically Jade covered Pact in an, uh, a length of time that a normal person should mm. <laughs> um, so that it's actually worth listening to after the fact. <laughs> um, anyway, so <laughs> what we're doing today is uh, we, we're doing another one of our special bonus episodes where we reflect on an arc of Pale. Um, so obviously here we're reflecting on Stolen Away, Arc 2, we bring in Jade to uh, to to lend your specific, you know, uh, brand of um, of literary analysis. I guess I have discovered that my specific brand of literary analysis is largely consistent of ranting about how much I love or hate specific characters <laughs> and making predictions that end up being wildly inaccurate. But I am very grateful that you guys invited me to be on the podcast today. I, I think if we ruled that out as literary analysis, we'd been at a really bad place across the different, you know, like, so. um, No, anyway. I've, I've had a blast following uh, with your skimming over packed stuff, Jade, so it's, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Um, so for those of you who, I guess, have forgotten what happened in Stolen Away, let's just quickly recap what happened. Uh, 2.1 opened with Lucy and the gang digesting all the horrible stuff that went down during the Hungry Choir's ritual and deciding that for some reason they want to go talk to the fairy. Uh, yep. Then we had a quick look at uh, Lucy's interview notes, which, you know, had some nice portraits by Verona and caught us up on everything that happened in Arc 1. In 2.2, Mist completely fails to scare off the girls from going to talk to the fairy, so Verona takes us to meet them, where Marisica drowns the girls in gifts. Mm -hmm. Classic, uh, a lot of terrible gifts. Um, in 2.3, we are back in Avery's head and she flirts with Alpi for a bit um, while, uh, you know, Lucy freaks out that Verona has turned into a rodent um, before Verona and Avery go off to do some weird body swapping, creepy stuff. Uh, yes, and then uh, before we jump into the aftermath of that, uh, we had Spell Notes 2, which gave us a look at some advanced runes, uh, but mostly gave us all the details on the Forest Ribbon Trail, which we'll come back to later. In 2.4, Lucy has an extremely long hair routine. She then puts Avery and Verona in their place about Operation Body Swapping, and then completely <laughs> loses it when Paul shows up. Yes. Um, 2.5 begins with Avery playing soccer, finally having a nice moment with Sheridan uh, that I don't think we're ever going to get back to again because uh, there's so much bigger stuff going on. But man, that was such a nice um, And then goes to visit Verona's house, which is probably the most horrifying location we've seen in the entire story. Yeah, it's the scariest place Avery goes this arc, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so then after 2.5, we had the gifts collected, which was basically uh, Verona summarizing everything they've gotten for us and also putting her own tinfoil hat on for a bit, which was fun. Then in 2.6, Verona and the rest of the Kenneteers interview Bev, a 
not quite ghost, but an echo, before going on a field trip with Miss Mizzle to the spirit world in the ruins. Um, and then we get some beautiful chicken nugget scenes uh, in 2.7. It, not the chicken nugget you might be familiar with, uh, but Verona giving chicken nuggets to some goblins um, before she turns into a cat. I forgot that she does that. That's the stupidest. <laughs> ah, Verona. Uh, I love that bit. Uh, but uh, after that, we got a peek at uh, Avery's location diary, which, you know, just gave us a little more info on the places that we saw, like the ruins, um, and just had the cutest fucking pictures in it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> in 2.8, Lucy has a chat with Booker, whom we meet in this chapter, fights the happy tree friends, and then helps Avery set up for her first trip on the forest ribbon trail. Yes, and then in 2.9, Avery... Uh, has a great time on the Forest Ribbon Trail and everything goes very well and we don't meet one of my favourite characters, Snowdrop. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then after that, Walbo teases us with a comic that makes you think we're going to get an answer as to what happened to Avery, but actually we don't. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then in 2.Z, we meet the lovely Nicolette Belanger and her circle of fuckwits. We see her losses to the rest of the cast from her perspective until Snowdrop shows up and lights her world on fire. Yep, life up her life. Um, yes. Wow, what an arc. What, a lot happened this arc. Man, when we got to the part where Verona turned into a cat, that was only like three chapters ago and already it feels like it was so long ago. Yeah, yeah it seems so monumental at the time. Arc. Yeah, there's a lot of that in this story, isn't there? It, keep, it keeps escalating. Yeah. <laughs> I keep thinking, oh, this is the worst thing now. that's happened. Wait, remember how bad the Hungry Choir seemed in 1.Z? And then I was reading like, Nicolette's backstory and I was like, let's go back to the Hungry Choir. Yeah. They're not so bad. The Hungry Choir are like, you know, roughly on the same team as the Kenneteers, which means like we've got a lot worse <laughs> that things can get, basically. At least the, the Hungry Choir have a, have a shtick and you can kind of predict the ways in which they can potentially attack you. But geez, those little snots at the Blue Heron Institute are just conniving and awful mm -hmm. yes absolutely God, that chapter was pretty rough um so yeah what what kind of things in general do we want to talk about for stolen away so one of the things that i i felt was kind of being pulled out more in in this arc was that you know this series is largely in two parts right the girls home lives and and their lives as practitioners and their home lives like largely revolve around their parents and how their family is affecting who they are and stuff. But I also feel like they are being raised by the others of Kennet. You know, mm -hmm. we, we've seen mm -hmm. a little bit how like each of the others is influencing the way the girls are developing. Lucy cursed her stepfather in this arc or ex, ex to be stepfather by using a strategy that was taught to her by Toad Swallow. Um, and then even though Toad Swallow's influence on Lucy seems to be pretty passive, Marissa seems to be like actively trying to influence the girls in in certain ways. You know, she she tells Avery about her romantic prospects in a way that basically can't not be manipulative. She mm -hmm. gives both of the girls exactly what they want through changing them with glamour in a way that they basically can't get this flavor of what they want any other way. And it begs the question of like, 
who does Marisica want the girls to be? What is what is she trying to accomplish here? But they're yeah. also being affected by all the other others as well. I think it's really interesting because we kind of, in arc one, I think we started to see that they were kind of being influenced by these others. And then we learn in, in this arc that actually they were chosen specifically because they have the potential to turn into others, right? Like that's why these three you know, are kind of on the fringes. They were expressly chosen because they are potentially going to turn into others at some point in their life. And some of them are more actively seeking that than others, I guess. Um, I think that's really interesting and a great example of something that that happens in, in you know, Pale and, and happened in Pact as well. This idea of like things coming up as uh, interesting narrative devices that are then brought and made literal by, uh, by you know, the, the machinations of the characters. So I love the idea that, you know, these three narratively interesting characters but also were chosen specifically in the story because they could kind of be influenced and, and raised by these others i think it's um i don't know yeah so it's I, I interesting think, i guess i think to the point on marisica specifically it's so it feels to me like there's more to this town in terms of like all the others must have made some kind of deal to not be Dickhead switch. I think the goblins explicitly yeah. talk about restrictions they have. Uh, so what are the terms exactly for Marisica and Guillaume? And, you know, like to, to your point, Jade, about what are their plans? Like, I feel like that's important. I, I want to know what are they doing here? What is their, what is their plan? And, and how do the Kennedys fit into that? Right. And, and my biggest question coming out of this arc was probably why do they want the girls to become others. We've heard a couple of theories from um, the pale predictor, but I, I think it could be almost anything at this point. Yeah. My, it's, a, it's a good thing. My gut right, reaction sorry, is that they, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't quite sit right with me, but the, the explanation I would give is, you know, they need practitioners to be around to resolve the Carmine beast situation, but they don't want practitioners to be around in the long term. So they've intentionally mm. chosen ones that they can kind of, get rid of by turning them into others you know um but right. it doesn't quite sit right like it feels like there's it's too obvious yeah exactly it, yeah but then you've also got the factor that they're 13 you know 13 year olds <laughs> have more of their life left than you know if they had picked louise for example yeah or Vernon's dead or something or, you know? yeah, right <laughs> like totally fucked up <laughs> Although, can you imagine if the if the Bellingers like were still coming to town and that they they had to present Verona's dad as the town practitioner? He would certainly <laughs> make them go away. He <laughs> <laughs> would get off it by being shitty. Like, they just wouldn't want to interact with him. Yeah. Um, so, I, like, I don't know. These three, I think they've maybe surprised everyone with how competent they actually have turned out to be. So, uh, maybe that was the point. Mm. um but yeah i i don't know there could be i i would not be super surprised if there was a twist of like another layer as to what the plan was with these three do we know if they have access to any kind of um magical way of of reading information about the girls um as far as if they could have used some specific form of scrying to figure out which girls would be most optimal for this i'm i mean i don't think we've heard anything about that like and 
That would really be like the an auger thing to do. Like, and I, I doubt yeah. they outsourced it to the Bellingers. So yeah, that's a good point. I, I feel I like it, Miss has just constantly demonstrated like an uncanny intuition mm. for things. So I, at this point, I'm willing to believe Miss just kind of picked it. It's possible as well that you know the hungry choir preys on people who are in kind of similar situations to our three Kenneteers in terms of like being a bit on the fringe and a bit ostracized by the rest of society. So maybe the hungry choir had something to do with like being like, hey, I've been thinking about these three as candidates for my ritual. Why don't we use them or something like that? Yeah, or if it had feelers out towards Although them it, or something and, and miss. Yeah, that probably ascribes a level of like collaboration and cooperation that it probably doesn't <laughs> seem to, to live up to. I don't know. Um, speaking about the Kenneteers, I, I think it's worth talking about, uh, Jade, how your perceptions of them has shifted over, you know, the course of this second arc. Oh, yeah. So I I should start out with saying that in arc one, the Kenneteers were ranked like Lucy and then like a really long distance. And then I was like, yeah, I like Avery and Verona. They're fine. Um, in fact, at the <laughs> beginning, I didn't even like Verona. Um, <laughs> but throughout this arc like for one avery became so much more competent right we see her mm. do so much amazing stuff in this arc all the stuff that she pulls in the in the final chapter where she's figuring out you know that snowdrop is always lying and that that means that the other opossum is also always lying and how to traverse part of the path blind I mean, she's gone from being a fragile flower whose emotions we were always on the lookout for and hoping she didn't get hurt to being a badass in the space of these nine chapters or f from the end of, of 1.x up until 2.9. She's become a, an extremely formidable force. Um, yeah, like, I, you know, I would have died on that trail. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. She, she definitely... I, I would bet she outclasses most of the um, readers as far as ability to remember what the heck that paper said that we read two weeks ago. Yep. Um, and then, I mean, I had the, I, I had the thing next to me as I was reading the chapter, and I still wasn't picking it up as quick as her. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> um, I, I think the thing I like about Avery is we, especially in the first arc, we kind of felt these escalations happen but they never really the group never really seemed to take anything seriously i mean lucy did i guess but avery and verona specifically didn't take this whole situation very seriously at all and i think for avery that really changed after you know the hungry choir after gabe um she's actually started to you know like take things seriously lucy uh kind of freaked out at her and that also clearly has had an impact on her in the past you know five chapters or whatever she's actually started to act like the situation demands that she should be acting, I guess. Right. And then I was, the thing that I was really, really impressed with Avery, this arc, even more than the path stuff, which was impressive, is that in the first arc, she was always thinking about, you know, I lost my best friend and I really want a relationship and I, I can't talk to Pam because I'm thinking about the fact that she didn't vote for me and stuff. And then in this arc, she gets to go on this little date thing with Pam, which is which is a huge step for her as far as like her confidence and what she had to do to put herself in that situation. And then she ha she realizes that this was the wrong thing, and she has to step back and and basically give Pam back to 
the place in her life that Pam previously was in, but mm. worse. And and she does it completely out of the goodness of her heart, I guess. Um, she knows that it's the thing that she has to do, and she just does it. She she takes the hard road, even though it's the right road, so many times in this. And it's I really love Avery now because she's her goodness just shines through in this arc quite a bit. Yeah, her ability to realize she fucked up and then take the punishment and and live with it is really admirable. Verona's dad could learn a thing or two. <laughs> we can't just constantly talk about how shitty Verona's dad is, even though he is the worst. I think we can. <laughs> That's the major theme of this story, is just constantly hating Verona's dad. He's just such a good he is terrible. thing to, to, oh, to shit on compared to like, when, you, yeah. when you're trying to talk someone else up, you just put them next to Verona's dad and it's an easy sell. Indeed. Um, should we well, touch well, on Verona? Yeah, should... I, I kind of had the same reaction as you, Jade, where in, in the first arc, I did feel like Verona was the one I was least interested in. And I think giving her, I mean, again, to bring up Verona's dad, giving her an enemy that is so, like, easy for everyone to rally around, I think really helps people stand behind her a lot more. Right. See, I think the Wildbow formula prepared me the wrong way for Verona's dad, because in the first chapter when they were fighting and he seemed to be this massive dickwad, I was like, okay, so the first arc interlude is going to be Verona's dad, and we're going to yeah. find out that he's this you know, perfect angel who was just having a bad day and we should all feel sorry for him and he's the hero of the story. And, okay, maybe not that that extreme, but I just assumed that we were going to find out there were extenuating circumstances and I was going to like this guy. And then I just kept waiting for that to happen and it didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love about it. It's like... I I have a really hard... I have a really hard time believing that there's room for uh, Verona's dad is actually an all right guy yeah uh, yeah. sort of redemption i think like i i had the same thought but like 40 or 50 percent of me in my heart is just like no he's got to be a practitioner and something's going on (laughs) and i'm not sure if i like that or if it's just me like desperately trying to rationalize how she (laughs) is like i i actually am not sure if that's if if that's ever going to happen but also if i actually want that to happen because it is just like trying to find an explanation for his shittiness I hope it doesn't happen because, as far as I hope that he is actually this bad, because then, because Verona has been clearly so impacted by this. Every couple of paragraphs, her thoughts just go back to, does this make me like my dad? Do I do this because of my dad? And if it turned out that Verona's dad was actually, you know, an echo that is replaying the same argument over and over again or something... Mm. Uh, I I don't know. Maybe that would help her in a different way, but yeah, I, I yeah I I agree with you, Jade. Like I think what what for me Verona's journey, this sort of arc was, was like it was us learning a lot more about her and and why she is the way she is. Like we we really see how much of a shit her dad is and how much, as you said, it affects her. Like every time this sort of like oh maybe I'll do this and then it draws her back into a memory of how her dad has sort of ruined that for her, whether it's dancing, whether it's, you know, just having fun. Um, so it's, it's like, he sort of stands as this thing that is the cause for all of her problems. And it, it could undermine it if it just turns out that's like, Oh, he's, you know, it's not as real for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And from the, 
from the first arc, I, I felt like Verona was just constantly making these dumb decisions, like leaving her sight on all the time and stuff. But when it turned out that she has an objective, which is to become another, we can debate how smart this idea is or, or whether it's a good idea for her to try to become another um, or whether she's jumping in too early. But it vastly improved my opinion of her to know that she was doing this for a purpose. She decided yeah. that she didn't want to be human anymore. And so she is going to start with the first thing that she knows how to use relatively safely, which is her sight. And again, maybe it's not a good idea. Personally, I'm okay with it. Because that's just how I think of bodily autonomy for kids. But but I respect the fact that she did actually have a premeditated reason for doing this. Um, mm, it made yeah, it exactly. intentional as opposed to just a bad, like a mistake. Yeah, she wasn't being dumb. She was, you know, doing a plan. And then whether the plan is <laughs> I, dumb is sort of a different issue. I, right. Yeah. I, I don't, I think, agree with you that I think it's a good idea. Just because... In general, like the fact that they've become practitioners, I feel like is a bad idea. Like it's just going further along this path of being I mean, more I, and more tied up in this world. I think to talk about whether or not it's a good plan, I, I, I'd want to take the step back and sort of say, well, what's she trying to achieve? Like to her mm. mind, like if you were to ask Verona, what does becoming an other get you that being a human is not getting you? Like is it this lack of emotions that she's sometimes trying to aim for? Is it, you know, escaping becoming an adult and having a job you hate and and paying off a mortgage for a house you don't like like what what is she specifically trying to get out of it and then we can sort of look at the other others in town mm. and maybe evaluate okay you know but would that do is it? this actually yeah. a good way to be doing this yeah see at first my opinion on this was there are so many adults who wish that they had been a wizard you know mm. there are so many people who grow up becoming a insert boring job of your choice here and go, man, I really wish I'd done something more exciting with my life. And there are a lot of people who don't have that experience, who have, you know, happy home lives and love their jobs, but there are as many people who don't. And if Verona knows that she wants something, I'm not opposed to the idea of her going after it. But then this arc, when she talked to Jeremy and it became clear that buried deep in there somewhere is someone who maybe would want a boyfriend one day or at mm. least would want to try i'm not sure how i feel about it anymore yeah exactly like i i worry that this is her doubling down on a potentially unhealthy reaction to you know what her home life has done to her um yeah because as you said like there are just these signs that underneath there there's actually just a normal healthy feeling girl who you know, it has just been buried and she's basically just deciding that she wants to bury it permanently. And maybe that's not the right call. Right. And at the same time, in her narration, this arc, she's she seems to only think of a reason to not do it as Lucy. She seems to be thinking about whether or not she should go through with this because Lucy would worry about her. And that's just not very many reasons. Um. <laughs> it's it's even, it's like, isn't it that she's just worried that Lucy will not like the plan? Like, it's not even, right. it's not even that she thinks Lucy will worry. It's just that she doesn't want to tell Lucy this plan, basically. Well, she doesn't want to upset Lucy, I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. 
not a compelling reason to not do it. <laughs> like, I feel like she needs to find more reasons for her humanity. But Yeah, the, the right. problem with that reason is all it's going to take is one big fight, and that reason might only go away for a week, but that could be all she needs to do something she can't take back. Right, and I feel like we've seen shades of this this arc because they got into this fight and Verona, well, Lucy told them that they were being stupid about the whole Kel incident and Verona kind of stormed off, not stormed off, but, you know, said, I have to go be by mm. myself for a little while. And then we talked to both Lucy and Verona about it separately. And they were both like, yeah, I mean, sometimes we fight and maybe we'll make up, maybe we won't. And that was, that really surprised me actually, because they've been best friends since like kindergarten or something. I assumed that they were both going to be like, yeah, sometimes we get into a fight and then 48 hours later we go get ice cream or something. But they hmm. didn't say that. They they were able to apologize to each other and and pull themselves together. But I also don't feel like their relationship is entirely unshakable after what we saw. Yeah, there was definitely a few moments where I started to feel that Part of their friendship is is just that sort of thing of we were friends growing up, yeah. um, and, and and you know like I think that's something you know a, a lot of us go through is like you you grow apart from friends you had as a kid, and you can still be friends and catch up, but there's not that same intensity to the friendship all the time because you've grown into different people. Um, and there's part of me that worries that that is what was sort of happening to Verona and Lucy, and and is still sort of happening, but also can't now because they're magically tied together. Yeah. I wonder if they're... So if the whole theory that they are magically tied together and that's why Avery is such fast friends with them is true, does that affect the friendship between Verona and Lucy? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I hopefully. Hopefully it means they're going to still be friends forever. <laughs> uh, is yeah. it true friendship if you have to be this person's friend? <laughs> I mean, that's the beauty of, of the way this stuff works in, in in this world is it makes it that you're actually friends somehow. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's weird. You're right. The universe just kind of wants you to be friends and so that kind of, yeah, gets you to be friends, I guess. Maybe, but yeah. maybe karma will just ensure that they never get into any major misunderstandings. Or like if they have a fight. I hope so. They'll just find a gift and assume it's from the other person, but really it was, you know, karma <laughs> leaving a gift on their doorstep. Um, so should we, let's touch on Lucy then, because to me, Lucy was a character that I felt I didn't really connect with in the first arc much at all, but obviously this arc focuses a lot more on her and her relationship to the other two. And I've found her becoming one of my favorites as a result. I'm yep. glad that you realized your mistake. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still an Avery, uh, fan. I think Avery is actually, this is interesting. So, you know, Jade, we've heard Lucy's yours. I think Avery is my favorite. Elliot, where do you sit? Are you a Verona? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I'm not making this up. Verona would probably be the one I've connected wow. with from go. the get-go and, and stuck by. So that's that's actually really fun. We've got a representative for each <laughs> Kenneteer. All right, now let's argue about who would win in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> who would win in a fight? Well, one of them has a gun. Lucy. <laughs> yeah, it'd be Lucy. Well, I don't know. Uh, Avery's got hockey sticks, so... Uh... <laughs> That's a compelling um, argument. It depends on how much soda is around. Yeah, how much soda uh, she's got. Is this with a vending machine? Can hide. <laughs> yeah, Verona would probably just leave. Yeah, turn into a cat and you know go up a tree or whatever. 
Um, but yeah, um, let, let's anyway, touch on back Lucy. To Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> I am interested to hear more of your thoughts about Lucy Jade, just because you are the you know the the Lucy stan in the group. Yeah. So I so in Lucy's original introduction, we see her like first talking pretty nasty about Avery behind her back, and we're like, hmm, is this person really awful? And then Avery comes out of the school, and Lucy turns around and says. You left me out here in the cold. Please don't do this anymore. They have a conversation in which she lays out, you know, you know you're probably not going to be in a relationship with with Miss Hardy and all this stuff. And she never really talks down to Avery, but she also, like, keeps the air clean room clear at all times. And I went, mm. oh, this is, this is going to be a character that I really like. Um, I like how direct she is. I like the fact that she's always trying to stay on topic with the plot, which is convenient for me, a person who cares about the plot occasionally. <laughs> um, but the the real reason that I, I really, really like her, even though she doesn't actually remind me of me very much, I just like her, is in the class ranker incident, she thinks to herself that she thinks that she could be more popular if she put effort into being nicer, if she tried to be friends with everybody, and we see her morning routine here, it's obnoxious. It it has to take a couple of hours per week, something that I don't know anyone who puts in that much effort. But even though she craves this acceptance by her peers, she's never willing to give up any of herself to get that acceptance. Like, she knows that she could try to be nicer and be everybody's friend, and then she would probably rise in the class ranker. But she doesn't want to change her personality. She's willing to put in the hours to make her hair look nice. She constantly thinks about what people see in her. She doesn't want people to see her in a bad way. But she refuses to change herself to please others. And that's a quality that is, I think, really admirable um, as a chronic people pleaser. I like yeah. her a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think it was fascinating to learn that she was going through all this, not really to like, you know, pretty herself up and make, pe make pe people like her, but to, it, it was, it was much more defensive. Like she, she's doing it for her and, you know, doing it to get like, you know, bastards to fuck off. And I really, you're right. Like that's, it was really impressive. And just watching her go through that morning, like you couldn't, you couldn't not respect her at the end of it. Like it was such a slog. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially since we had another long hair routine scene last arc. Mm. And then we get this one. We're like, hang on, that was the night hair routine. And this is the morning hair routine. There's more <laughs> than one. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. I, I think um, it was the scene with Booker. It really sold it to me where she she mentioned the idea of the way she sees the world is she, she only wants to have people in her life that care about her enough to get past, you know, the initial prickliness or whatever, however she would describe it. Um, and if they don't pass that bar, then she doesn't really care about them that much. I, I do. I do think that made me respect her worldview on that a bit more. Mm. And I, I do really love her for that she she respects herself enough to to demand of the people around her respect N demand is the wrong word but like she makes sure that the people who are around her treat her the way she wants to be treated at the same time i also feel like the story is trying to show us that she does need to open up a bit more 
because mm. clearly her being separated from the rest of their class, for example, does make her miserable. And yes, the, the rest of her class isn't treating her with the utmost respect. But we contrast, we contrast her really explicitly with Avery in the first scene of the arc, I think, when it, when she tells Avery, you need to be more like me and and blame other people for things. And I think the story is leading us to a place where their attitudes on the world start to converge into like an optimal level of idealism versus cynicism, taking an appropriate amount of responsibility for your own actions, but also blaming other people where appropriate. Um, so I was really happy that we got a whole lot of development where the two of them are hanging out one-on-one -on -one this arc, um, because I think they need to fuse their ideologies. Mm. Yeah, you're yeah. right. There's definitely this middle ground between Lucy and Avery that is the appropriate level of self-doubt versus self-confidence and, you know, blaming others versus taking accountability for your actions, I guess. Yeah, it reminds me what, um, like, like Booker sort of touched on it a bit. Like, Booker was talking to Avery about maybe having, like, a slightly... Sorry, Booker was talking to Lucy about maybe having, like, a slightly different like he was he seemed more inclined to give people chances and mm. then like you know you know get his teeth out i think was the term they used uh if that person you know turns out to be an asshole whereas you know lucy was definitely taking that approach of you know they need to make it past that hurdle um and avery's maybe like gone on the other side of booker and they've got to try and meet in the middle maybe right and the the interesting thing about booker is that even though he's a person who Lucy seems to really idealize and, and he does seem like a super cool dude, very empathetic and kind. You also get the sense from the conversation between them that Lucy wouldn't necessarily be happy being like him. Like he suggests that she go out and party. And when I try to picture Lucy going out and drinking and partying i i just don't feel like that's a hobby that she would enjoy so she needs to she definitely needs to find stuff that she likes like um avery has her hockey and verona is slowly getting back into art but lucy's thing is trying to keep avery and verona alive and booker is definitely <laughs> right that she needs to have something other than that activity but she also needs to find her own activity that's not just being booker jr mm. i really like that i mean where's melissa when you need her melissa was always the suggests you go and do something person <laughs> well melissa will be staying in the same place for a while so lucy can probably <laughs> find her that was me that's uh, true uh yeah i yeah it's a good point like i, I yeah like I, i'm trying to think if we know of any extra passions or anything like lucy obviously has the music and stuff but that was something she kind of inherited from booker and and she was doing it because booker did as well right and it's something that was mentioned like once it, it, she clearly mm. enjoys it but it's not a it's not a way of expressing herself yes yeah that's uh that's interesting i really like that we'll have to change our discussion question to what should lucy's <laughs> hobby be <laughs> yeah it's an interesting one yeah you're right i i mean i guess you know we've talked about the idea that there are two lives to each of these uh, main characters their home life obviously constituting a major part and, and their practitioner life. And I'm, I, can, I can see, you know, Avery obviously has sports as her, like, home life hobby thing. What does Verona have? What's Verona's 
thing that she, is she's known. got her she, art. Well, uh, she, yeah. she did, right? She did, and well, then yeah. Lucy is Lucy was talking about how it. She stopped doing art after her dad broke her. Yeah, art stuff. Um, yeah, I think that's probably. I thought you were finishing. Mm-hmm. I thought you were finishing that sentence just at broker, and, <laughs> and that was actually make a point. And then, and then you finished off with art stuff, and I was like, oh yeah, that's oh, yeah, that makes sense too. Yeah, <laughs> it's both. Um, uh, yes, exactly. What else should we talk about? We've talked about the uh, the the three. Should we talk more about the dynamics that have evolved between them over the course of this arc? Because that really is what happens this arc, right? Is we get to explore the pairings of them a bit more, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean. We already sort of touched on uh, Lucy and Avery a bit. Um, I mean, it was so much fun seeing Lucy get to go to Avery's house. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the the reason I, I really like that scene is because in in arc one, in Avery's like second chapter, because she had those first two, the, her first two chapters were back to back. In her second chapter, which was in her first appearance, she was thinking about how if she ever had a girlfriend, she hoped that that girlfriend defended her to her family much better mm. than her dad defended her mom or whatever. And that she expects that somebody will will stand up for her, basically. And while Lucy isn't that person, when Lucy goes into Avery's house and is just like, listen, while I am here, everybody's going to treat Avery with respect. <laughs> I felt so good because I, I knew that Avery mm. was probably glowing as somebody came in here and was going to be the defender of the Avery for the next 30 minutes. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure I, cause you know, obviously Lucy is to use her own words, a bit of a bad influence. Like she encourages Avery to spill the cold water on Sheridan or whatever. Um, but it's, it's you're right. It's kind of worth it just to have Avery have someone who's got her back. When she's all, almost always the one on her own. And these girls aren't really all about long-term consequences anyway. I mean, what'd you expect? <laughs> mm. They haven't really shown an aptitude for thinking of long-term consequences. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Well, what about, um? I think Verona and Avery is also, I think, obviously the other one that we had a lot of thinking about this arc because they, they worked together on, um, you know, Operation Big Dumb. Um, <laughs> and we haven't seen much of them together it just as a pair since um right. and i'm really interested once we get avery back um which will definitely crossed, happen <laughs> um i'm very interested to see more of the the two of them because they both had the wake-up call uh when lucy you know went to town on them the next day um and they've both sort of been trying to be better but we haven't seen them do it together yet and i'm really interested to see what they look like now that they've both been you know and especially Avery, if she makes it back, uh, she'll have been shook up a bit. Right. And even though we we didn't see too much of them interacting during Operation Big Dumb, it, it was really neat that Verona was just in support mode. You know, same as Lucy when Lucy was at her house, but this whole, okay, Avery wants to do something fun. Okay, I will do what it takes to facilitate this. I am the fun guard. And even when Avery, right? And even when Avery was beating herself up after the Kel incident, Verona was like, "No, that was great," and trying to find nice things to say to cheer her up. I don't remember exactly what she said, but 
I appreciate how much the other two are really going all in on being Avery's friend, which is, I'm sure, something that we've already said a million times. But mm. yeah, yeah. There's obviously also this um, to stick with Verona and Avery. I think the other thing we have seen between them is this potential uh, familiar triangle that is developing between them and Alpi. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> oh, what a mess! For that. Which, like, I, yeah, that'll be interesting. I mean, now, now we've got Snowdrop in the picture. Maybe it won't be an issue. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Assuming, I, Snow, I, assuming Snowdrop is able to be out of the path at the same time as Avery, which would be great. <laughs> I but. refuse to acknowledge the possibility that they send Snowdrop back in and sacrifice her. I can't cope with that. Mm. It's going to be fine. They'll get her out another way. They'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> They probably will. Um, but on the whole, on the whole, the girls are talking about familiar stuff. I have a, I have a crackpot theory. Um, this, the, I've already thought it through. There's a million problems with it. Um, but I figure now is as good a time as any to drop this ridiculous yep. theory in the middle. Um, so, yeah, sure. So, Verona thinks about being lucy's familiar and as it's going on you're like "Ooh, i know this is not gonna this is not gonna happen and then when they interact later there's these little hints that it's it's just not gonna work um but we keep getting this beat of like potential familiars being uncomfortable or not working out you know avery and verona want the same familiar and um Verona wants to be Lucy's familiar and stuff. So my crackpot theory is in a moment of crisis, you know, there's going to be an emergency of some kind. Lucy will take a familiar. And then when Verona finds out about this, she's going to be super disappointed because now she can't be Lucy's familiar. Mm. That road is completely closed off. And then this is going to cause some team drama because, you know, it, it will. It's a theory. But this will be made worse because the familiar is going to be John who's being shoved into the role of the Carmine Beast. And now this is going to get the girls directly into the gooey inner workings of the Carmine Beast selection process. And that's how Uh, this one familiar problem is going to explode the whole setup. That's fascinating. I can definitely see Lucy and John as a pairing. um, Yeah, I can see it too, but I've been thinking about it because we touched on the idea that each of these three kind of is forming a soft allegiance with a type of other right right and and that the one that always comes up is lucy and the goblins and so i i can totally see lucy and john but also i'd love to see like lucy and blunt munch or something i don't know toad swallow yeah i mean somebody's got to take cherry up (laughs) yeah true (laughs) look i love the goblins but oh can you imagine like being tied to one for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, true. You wouldn't want that, would you? <laughs> like they're, they're kind of a once-of-a-week thing, I, I reckon. That would be a very interesting hair care experience with a, with a goblin around. <laughs> She'd start finding razor blades in there, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I Yeah, I, I do like it. It's interesting, like, because if, if Lucy did take John as a familiar, how, how would that affect the whole... Carmine Beast selection. Mm, the like, investigation, yeah. See, I'm just, or, or even just 
just the selection process. Yeah, like, can sure. you be the Carmine Beast if you're if you're a familiar? A familiar. See, we keep going back to this whole John as the Carmine Beast thing, and how you know his killing of Yalda was important to the history of the town or the commune or something mm. like that. And Miss wants to take the outcome that will be worse for John or Miss wants the girls to take the strategy that will end up being worse for John. And I, I don't, I've got my tinfoil hat on something about John is going to end up being super, super important. And all we know about him outside of this is that he's just a, a cool dude who plays video games and cool yes, gamer, he did attack the girls, but that's beside the point. Yeah, they were in his house. So quickly, <laughs> they were in his house. I, yeah, I had forgotten about that. Actually, that's good fair point. Enough. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I John has been an interesting character because he's kind of been put in this position just by that one moment with um, I think it was Matthew or maybe it was Charles who was like, yeah, so these are the two people that are likely to succeed: the Carmine Beast, the Hungry Choir, and John. And that one moment has cast so much doubt on him as like a potential danger, a potential, you know, schema, whatever it is. But really outside of that thing, there's nothing else to count against him. Right. Right. And, and when he said in his introductory chapter, yeah, I don't want to be the Carmine Beast. What are you talking about? I believed him. Yeah, of course. He he really doesn't give off the vibe of someone who's who's manipulating or or work. Yeah, exactly. He's just, he just he just wants to mind his own business and, and kill some you know intruders. Okay, so do you want do, or do you think the hungry choir wants to be the Carmine choir? Mm. I don't know that I ascribe them the particular part of sapience that they'd have that sort of want. Yeah, I don't feel like they, they would have ju- aspirations. I think they take power if they're offered it. Like I think they would take it just because it'd sort of be the universe saying, hey, power source, and they'd be like, yep, cool, mine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and then they do a shit job. Uh, I, I think this is something mismentioned. They do a shit job, and then they get replaced quickly after a really terrible period. Um, so, yeah, I think they take it, but I don't know if I I don't know if I think they're smart enough to want it or scheme for it. But maybe I'm underestimating them. I don't know. With the whole thing with them trying to get Avery mm. in the library. Yeah, that's true. It's... They've got some ability to plan, and maybe they've got a limited like three steps to a plan. But I don't know. Yeah, we still don't know how the footless woman won uh, her night either, which is yeah. something that makes me nervous about the hungry choir. Like something else is going on. That's yeah, true. For sure. That's true. See if if neither John nor the hungry choir wanted to be the Carmine choir dog then whoever killed the carmine beast must have taken into account that one of them would ascend Mm. and that means they are either wanting to screw over john or wanting the hungry choir to have more influence over the area but neither of those seems likely yeah but there must be a third option right and maybe that's what's gonna be the big kind of you know, unraveling of the mystery is what actually is going to happen here. But I have no, I just have no idea what it could be. <laughs> like I, the only thing I can think of is the fairy might do it for entertainment. Like, hey, let's let's turn true. this whole huge chunk of Canada into a you know fuck fest for 
uh, you know, a couple of months, that'll be fun. Um, but that doesn't feel right to me. I don't know why. Yeah. Cause even, even though like, I don't trust the fairy, they, I don't not trust them enough to think that they might turn over Canada to the hungry choir for Mm. laughs. But but if they did, I would believe it, but I, I don't (laughs) theorize that they are doing that. I feel like yeah, I, they would I need agree. another reason. It can't just be just for entertainment. There would need to be some motive there, I think. Yeah. I there there's definitely an additional motive here that I am not seeing. Mm. Well, that we're supposed to not seeing seeing. Yeah. 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 Um there'll be there'll be some big reveal and it'll all click into it'll place. It'll all make sense and then we'll come back and think about how stupid we were yeah. being back at this <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> Um, so obviously the other thing that happens this chapter is we meet, uh, the Belangers and we're introduced to them as these, um, you know, seemingly antagonists, at least for the next arc, if not for longer. Um, I, I just, I want to touch on these and the, the idea of introducing us to more structured elements of, of practitioner families and magic in the world, just cause I think it's awesome basically. <laughs> yeah. I think it's super important for framing our understanding of uh, the Kennedys and their position as well, like to, to to be able to compare them to the usual question mark. I don't want to call Nicolette's circumstance usual, I suppose, um, but, you know, a, a point of comparison for what practitioning can be like outside of being adopted by a commune of, of weird others. Right. See, the lives of the... Students here at the Blue Heron Institute seem so miserable. Like, you you take Lucy's isolation and you're like, man, that really stinks. And then you see Nicolette and how each of the students at this institute or apprentices are all like actively trying to drag each other down and they're they're looking for opportunities to forswear each other because that's what they're supposed to do here. And it's messed up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a shit environment, the, <laughs> the, the Blue Heron Institute. It's real bad. It's like the anti-Hogwarts. That's, yes. So we touched on this in, in the episode discussing this, but I really love the fact that they have basically kitchen elves because it is set up as it's like explicitly a Hogwarts reference, right? Right. But yeah, I, I, everyone there is such a piece of shit. It's it's great. Yeah, it's um because I, I had any like, <laughs> It's the it's the church setup as well. Like it's it, it's all sandstone and and stuff, right? But it's like uh. Nicolette is tucked away in this corner that's like really dirty and dingy, whereas Hogwarts is always kind of like, oh yes, it's all sandstone, but don't worry, it's you know, it's got nice uh, bedrooms it, too. Yeah, it's great. It's great to live in, and it's which, well insulated. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I I really like the the idea that it's the anti Hogwarts, and the whole. If you've ever read Ender's Game, there's this discussion of like the psychology of of being in a school with one person as the leader or whatever. And whoever is the leader of the army decides who does like the chores and stuff. And when Ender, the protagonist becomes the leader of his army, he decides that for his group, everybody's going to do the chores. No, none of the 
you know, the younger students do the chores as a form of hazing or whatever. We're not going to have any hazing. We're just going to have everybody working together. And his army works so much better than everybody else's because they have this camaraderie and morale boost. And when I was reading this whole thing that Nicolette being the youngest has to wait on all the other students and everybody mm -hmm. in the in Alexander's domain, it's it's like they're deliberately going for a bad way to run a school, I guess. Well, you yeah, know. I think Nicolette basically implies that yeah, Alexander is doing it all on purpose. Like he thrived in this environment that was built on strife and he rose to the top and he's That's perpetuating right. it because it, it worked for him. Um, and he's, he's doing the exact opposite of Endo where he's like, you know, this worked for me. So like selfishly, I'm going to keep enforcing it so I can remain on top. Right. Yeah. I think there's probably an aspect to it as well that because they like, they want to, you know, call each other out and forswear each other and all this stuff. I, I think Alexander does make the conditions intentionally shittier so that people are more likely to like snap and have infighting. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just horrible. And then of course only the very best or fastest acclimating make it. Mm. Yeah. Well, yes and, and no, because you get people like Seth who, as members of the family, get extra chances, um, yeah. which is, you know, just the icing on the cake of how shitty this place is. And you get things like how Nicolette is basically going to sell out the Blue Heron Institute to this other group of augurs, right? And because definitely of course, she has no, no one knows that she's doing this. She's absolutely <laughs> kept it a secret. She's so subtle, Yeah. <laughs> She lives yeah, in a castle really... with a bunch of psychics. <laughs> she really will make a great Kenneteer when she finally jumps teams because <laughs> it's exactly the kind of thinking they're working on. It's like, oh, we can out, we can outthink the fairy. No, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So I wanted to bring up that, like, Nicolette thinks that Alexander wants to marry her when she turns eighteen, but he's also like not trying to help her to be more powerful or more capable. So I actually stopped in the middle of the chapter and I was like, why is, he, why is he trying to marry Nicolette instead of finding like a powerful member of some other family or, you know, somebody his own age, mm. something crazy like that. Um, and his treatment of the dollhouse as this interesting toy is what kind of gave me the answer. I think I am pretty sure the implication is that Alexander wants to, take off Nicolette's head spirit filter and allow her to be a neat toy that can, mm. that can collect these spirits as a, as a cool trinket. Cause you know, we know that Alexander is a person who treats other people as, as steps on his ladder. I mean, he forswore Charles. I, mm. I can't not think that the only reason Nicolette is around when she's so obviously very different from everybody else is because of this hole in her head that appears to that he appears to be so fascinated with, which is just gross. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's it's gross enough that I, I, I could believe it. I think the other thing she talks about is he might want to marry her off, which is its own kind of gross. Is that um, what that phrasing was? I think I skipped the word off. Yeah. I, uh, she, she thinks he might want her for himself or he might want to marry her off. So okay. it's kind of, you know, pick your poison i suppose mm. she is um, just a bargaining chip right like she, right. he yeah 
it, it was the wording of the dollhouse where he says that this was a cursed object that he cleansed and it kind of it it it's like he groomed that object and it made me realize like that's just what he's doing to nicolette right yeah yep. and what what could his plan be there yeah she kind of reminds he's, he's me gonna of be this. that's yeah that's not a bad connection like we we've sort of talked about how depending on exactly how matthew shaped edith there's potential grossness mm. there um that's yeah you're right that might be there might be some some sort of link there I don't want there to be any grossness. I want there to be a nice, cute other couple that yeah, you know, same serves as parents to our girls, but um, it's not shaping up to look that way. No, based on what we're learning about practitioners, if if the Blue Heron Institute is at all representative of what it's like to be a practitioner, um, it doesn't bode well for what Matthew might be like as a person. Uh, yeah. Especially yeah. Not because uh, I, I, he's specifically named as being like a heartless right like right that doesn't inspire confidence in his <laughs> you know empathy or kindness good point <sighs> so uh so we've touched on a lot of the major things in arc two so far i guess let's just go back to the kind of overall things i think every uh episode of power reflections that we've done we've had a different prediction about who might be a uh secret practitioner <laughs> So, uh, Jade, do you have any theories on who the secret practitioner in the story might be? Because there's got to be one. Okay, who could be the secret practitioner? Okay, so I was actually going to say that I think that Sheridan is going to be made aware of Ooh. magic by the arc. But yeah. if Sheridan was a secret practitioner, I would also, I mean, just to just to guess somebody different than everybody else, I would guess Sheridan. <laughs> Um, but with, in, in this chapter in 2.9, um, the other opossum says something bad is going to happen with Avery's family. And yes, we know that it was lying, but now I'm like, oh, so something bad is going to happen with Avery's family. Right. Um, mm. so yeah, I actually, I, I actually think it mostly told the truth that the evil, the evil possum. Yeah. It had, um, it had some moments that felt strange to me, like, um, like when it was talking about, well, Avery's family, actually, specifically. The the parts where it felt the least true were the parts where it was talking about Avery's family. Yeah, I mean, when it said that, when it was saying the stuff about Avery being an accident, maybe I maybe I have a bad understanding of the situation, but, I mean, they had two more kids, so, yeah. I mean, it's it's difficult to have the exact same accident of that magnitude two more <laughs> times with roughly equal um, time frames. So I was under the impression that was a lie. And even yeah, if it I was, think... I don't think they care too much. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that it was at best kind of abusing the truth. Like the idea that she was an accident was kind of used to imply that that's why they don't love her as much, which is mm. like absolutely bullshit. Right. Um, but yeah, I I, don't, I think there was something about oh the she your mum didn't realize other medication she was on was affecting the birth control, um, which I mean yeah you're right it took them three three accidents apparently to, to recognize that, that. yeah um I yeah I I don't know but like I definitely I I actually quite like the idea that Sheridan is someone who might be brought into this I yeah, think if I, I, I if I had to too. list people who who might get suckered in Sheridan's probably a good one. 
Well, especially because we know Sheridan is kind of in a similar boat to Avery in that she mm. talked about how she is also very much like intentionally on the fringe of society. She doesn't really have many friends. She doesn't really have many like she doesn't have any kind of romantic interests. She basically just wants to leave the town. She wants to pull a Verona as, she, as soon as she can. Like, yeah, I can definitely see it. Yeah, she was almost the Verona cross Avery person mm. uh, in a way. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that prediction. Not that she's a practitioner, that she might get brought into it. I, I keep telling you, Ruben, there's no secret practitioner. Ah, there is. We'll find them eventually. I still think it's <laughs> Heather. I think Heather's the most likely. We'll see. Speaking of Heather, I wanted to bring up that. Um, so Verona has this like constant thought about how all adults are miserable, and mm. you know, if you have a job, it's because you're sad, or, or no, if it's um, the other way around, but. Um, she thinks about how Avery's parents probably secretly don't love each other. I mean, it's impossible for two people to <laughs> be happy like that. Um, yeah. And then we meet Heather, and uh, who I do not think is a practitioner, and but she is this free spirited artistic woman who spends a significant amount of her time traveling and supporting her loved ones. Um, if if anybody can cause Verona to question her adults are miserable theory, it's Heather. Um, it doesn't mm. really look like they're going oh, yeah. to cross paths at this point, but I I feel like Heather's purpose in story is a little bit to just kind of nudge people's subconscious into being like, actually, not all adults in this universe are that miserable. Because um, it is a theme. Mm. Yeah, I yeah I really like that. I hadn't considered that, but you're right. We need somebody needs to sit. Verona down with Aunt Heather for a day. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm trying to now. I'm just trying to think of how we can make that happen. <laughs> how can we? How you can make that happen? Play you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, we'll start a petition. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Um, I definitely agree. I think Aunt Heather's going to come up again because she was too fun and interesting to just go away. I hope. Yeah, right. she's going to be the main antagonist of the oh. story. I keep telling you all. <laughs> Speaking of main antagonists of the story, what do you think Alexander is getting at? Like, he he put together this pretty elaborate plan to forswear Charles. And it, it is mm. a power boost, but that also seems to have been, like, something that he had to go to lengths to do. Um he seems to have a bunch of balls in the air that he's juggling. Do you have any he, ideas about what you think he's he's doing? He kind of reminds me of a fairy in that I think we've touched on the it's idea of fairy as these like kind of versions of the like Machiavellian supervillain trope where they've got these meticulous plans that get executed and, you know, fall into sequence like uh, the Joker in, in uh, The Dark Knight or whatever, right? Any kind of Machiavellian type villain. And and Alexander feels like that to me. He feels like somebody that is there to just kind of be doing these like evil science experiments where he tests people out and tries their limits and then puts together these crazy plans. And it makes him quite a terrifying <laughs> villain. Like I'm quite excited to see if we go up against him more properly in this arc or later on, whatever. I, I think he's just going to be so scary because he is so knowledgeable about all kinds of things yeah he's um he, like he's he's obviously a terrible human uh but he's a very fun villain um he yeah i i don't know at this point if he has a big 
plan, if that makes sense. Like, I, so far, it just kind of seems like at this stage, he's just genuinely curious about Kennet and he's willing to burn half his library down to force Nicolette to go there for some reason. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. Is there is there another layer to this, or is it just is he just that kind of you know willing to watch the world burn to get the the goss? And you know what? That's a that's a really interesting point. He will. He seems really interested in Kennet, obviously, and he also has a bunch of these like objects, like the dollhouse and stuff. I feel like he is the exact kind of practitioner that the Kennet others do not want to come in and just mm. find mm-hmm. them or subject them to some kind of deal. Um, when when the Kennet others are awakening these girls and and giving them certain information about how to treat others and what they do and do not want out of the practitioners of Kennet. I feel like what they do not want is exactly what Alexander is. Mm, someone who collects. Absolutely. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think probably the other angle to Alexander is as someone who trades in information and seems like freakishly good at gathering it, it maybe just like, and he touches on this. It's probably very upsetting to him to find out there's like a town with practitioners that he doesn't really know anything about. Like he is probably someone who feels like he has a sense of control in not just the Heron Institute, but like in in this wider region of Canada, right? Because he's the person who knows everything and he has connections to everyone. So to find out that there's a little town where the only connection he has to it is Charles. Like, you know, he's probably like, okay, well, like, fuck this. We've got to, like, I either need to fully understand it or get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I'm excited for Charles to be relevant in the story. (laughs) What are we going to do? Am I right? Who knows what the fuck he's got up his sleeve? Maybe he will try to find ways to be relevant. Um, He'll try to help, and then the universe will just conspire to make all of his efforts worthless. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. I can see it. I can I can see Charles devolving into a, a running gag that he has the answer, but nobody's going to listen to him. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'll yeah. be that person who like who like says the thing, and then somebody else in the board meeting says the same thing, and everyone's like, "Oh yes, yes, good point." <laughs> <laughs> At least in that oh. case, somebody would actually present the other successful idea, which is what I'm afraid mm. would be prevented. Um, since yeah, yeah, good point. since the girls seem so intent on like every time Charles gives them advice in arc one, they're like, yeah, but I don't know about that guy. So yeah, maybe I'm going to do the opposite. Uh, oh, he thinks yeah, this so is serious and we should have done it. Yeah, but he looks kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was just this like inherent distrust of everything about him, which was so hilarious because then we, we soon learn it's because he's got this bad karma. Um, yeah, it was so fun to just watch them be like, no, we can't trust him, which is exactly what the universe is, is sort of doing to them. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. Uh, what else do we want to talk about with uh, with Arc 2? Any, any other stuff we want to talk about before we get to some of the really high-level stuff? My last question that I wrote, I think, because um, we kind of jumped around a little bit, but so they talked about how the first major ritual you do cements you into being a a specific kind of practitioner. Like in this case, Avery mm. D 
did a ritual that will cement her into being a finder. And this was like, no, Lucy, you can't go because then you would mm. be a finder and everybody, all the spirits would know that you were a finder. Um, do you think that we're going in any specific directions with the other two yet? I mean, it's definitely, it's hard to tell because we don't know how many options there are. That's true. I, I, I feel like Lucy seems to be getting set up to be some sort of like combat or, mm. or violence based yeah. practitioner. Like she's got the the ring that turns things into weapons. She used the um the hot lead. the glamour to to turn it into like a thing that made Nicolette think she was blind. Like it, mm. it's all very uh, like violent and combative type stuff. I- um, so I don't I don't know if there's a word for that, but. That seems to be the direction she's heading in. I don't think that a, I don't think that Lucy would actually go for being an auger like Nicolette, but the kinds of things that Nicolette Nicolette was doing with the information gathering and stuff does seem to be pretty similar to what I think Lucy would be interested in with the information gathering and combat, you know, being able to see what people are doing and react in real time from afar. I don't know. Mm. I don't think we would have another auger in Lucy, but something like that where there's multiple components. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And I then I'm just hoping Verona doesn't become a fairy. Yeah, like I'm trying to think what it would be for Verona and anything that defines her as a practitioner, as in someone who is at least partially still human. I'm like, <laughs> yes, go for it, Verona. That's a good step. <laughs> I see Verona, like she just... She doesn't seem to have an interest in a specific aspect of the practice as far as I can think of. She just likes learning about it so mm-hmm. far. Right. Like she, she either hasn't found her shtick or maybe she'll grow up to be like a she'll run a practitioner bookshop. She reminds uh, me and she'll be She reminds me of like that kid that doesn't like school, doesn't like doing homework, but they do like music and they play 14 instruments. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like she's been pretty good at the runes and That's like cool. spirit kind of stuff. So it's, there's like something to do with that. I've forgotten what what, t- what type of practitioner that is, but I'm pretty sure if you do that, that's a type. Right, yeah. I think they learned all their runes from Matthew and Edith, right? Yeah, uh, yes. Well, and we saw Nicolette use runes. That's so true. to some degree, they're a generalist, they're a generalist thing. Yeah. thing. But um, yeah, oh, maybe Verona can follow in uh matthew's footsteps and like That's get possessed by something true. that makes her feel good things rather than a do <laughs> get, possessed get by like a friendly a, human a, spirit yeah a positivity spirit right just like <laughs> get possessed by that try convincing an other to let you to let you have all of their positive emotions and keep all the negative ones yep <laughs> yeah that's what she needs to do easy that's what she needs to very do. straightforward ah <laughs> uh. Um, cool. Well, okay, let's let's take a step back and talk about some other high-level things. Um, Stolen Away as an arc title. So, obviously, I think we all kind of had the thought of this being to do with uh, being lost or taken, uh, especially on the path. Um, what else do we think this arc title might be saying? Well, the definition of to steal away uh, is to leave or depart from a location very quickly and quietly, like, you know, undercover sort of thing so to be stolen away presumably is you know to have someone take you from somewhere very quickly and quietly um which you know obviously applies to avery Mm. so i thought of some things that were stolen away in this arc 
Um, Declan's chance at victory in his video game was absolutely stolen <laughs> away by Sheridan mm-hmm. in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good one. Uh, Verona is offering chicken nuggets to all of the goblins, but most of them are stolen away by Cherry Pop as she continues to answer <laughs> questions faster than the others. Um, Snowdrop is is stolen away by uh, Nicolette, though. That happens. Yeah, that's, that's true. Like it's the major one. I also. I mean, mm. Oh yeah, I mean, obviously Avery kind of gets stolen away in that process as well. But like, I think the big one for me, uh, and this is sort of what Jade touched on right at the start, where we were talking about how the the others of Kenneth have kind of adopted them. Um, this sort of thing might apply to the lives or the futures of the Kenneteers and Nicolette. Like they have been stolen away and and taken into this this other world that's obviously incredibly dangerous. That's right, because. Mm. Um, Marisica's fairy court is the one that steals children, right? Yes. Right. I was mm. so worried when that was being brought up in like two point four, <laughs> like the art called "Stolen Away." So one day, you know, uh, at least one day, Carrie Kelly is just not going to come back. And <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'd never realized her name is Carrie Kelly. Oh, they ran out of names after the first few children. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> was Aubrey and Audrey in this arc? Yes, it, yes, that was it the was. soccer practice arc. So, I'm so sure that they were fairy in disguise. There's no other explanation. I can't remember if I mentioned this in in our 2.5 episode, but like I went to college with a brother and sister duo called Michelle and Michael. Oh, that's um, that's so it does happen. That's terrible. Oh man, it's, that's they intense, weren't twins though. Intentionally confusing. Well, they weren't, they weren't twins. One was like two years older than the other. So I, I have a feeling the conversation sort of must have been, well, what do you want to call our second child? And I was like, oh, I, th- I think we nailed it the first <laughs> time. It so right the first time, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Classic. Um, um, all right, should we, yeah. do we have any other bold theories that we want to make? We've been kind of – we did a bit of tinfoiling before. Any others? Uh, Jade, who do you think yeah. is the is the, the Carmine Beast murderer? Yeah, I think something we're, we're going to do to all the guests who appear it's on these episodes them, yeah. is force them to make a bold and specific prediction on who done it. Okay, so originally I had a vague prediction, but then in in the notes there's actually a space where it says Jade will be forced to make a bold and specific prediction. So <laughs> I specific. I went as specific as I could get, but um, I actually just finished my my reading of Pact this week and. Somebody who was watching that asked me to tally up all of my predictions from the from the whole show, and I was twenty four percent accurate overall. for For comparison, I think Scott was fifty three percent at the end of We've Got Worm. He was in mm-hmm. the fifty percent. So I'm my prediction accuracy is abysmal. So assume that twenty four percent of this grand unifying theory is correct. Um, <laughs> So, for one, I think that the prologue will end up containing almost all of the information we needed to know, just without the necessary context to have been able to decipher it. Um, so, for that yeah. reason, I'm really focusing on the stuff that showed up in, in 0.0. Um, but the specific element that I'm focusing in on is the fact that Matthew can erase memories. Um, whenever the girls are interviewing the others around town, they're asking if they killed the Carmine Beast or if they know who did. And the fact that we have somebody in the cast who can demonstrably remove people's memories of certain incidents is 
something I feel like we're going to need to know in the future. Um, mm. I Yeah, I I agree. Like, I, I think I, I, it, it absolutely seems important that people can wipe memories <laughs> in a world where you have to tell the truth. Right. Especially since Edith, the person that Matthew is kissing most frequently, I assume, since she's his wife, and kissing was how he removed memories before, Edith was out at a strange time, according to the goblins, mm. and she hasn't brought it up yet. And yeah, Edith hasn't been around a lot, but it hasn't been mentioned. That being said, I think that Miss did it, um, specifically because, you know, she's her lines are like the last line of a chapter. Lucy thinks she acts like she did it, and I trust Lucy's judgment. Um, but I, I think that Miss orchestrated something involving Matthew and Edith killing the Carmine Beast and then and then wiped the evidence from the consciousness of the others. Um, mm. But I do think that um, at the end, we will understand why she did it and we're going to think that it was a good idea or at least debate about it for the next 10 years. <laughs> um I, I think sh we've seen her in a position as someone who's mysterious, who's afraid of being controlled by others, and who's trying to control the investigation. And she serves as kind of a leader in the community. So I, I think that she's the person who is ultimately most responsible, even if she's telling other people to do things for her. There's my as bold and specific as I can get. I like it. Yeah, very I think, bold, very I think a, few, a few episodes ago, we talked about how Miss was talking about all that stuff about how she needs a role. Uh, mm -hmm. Or the universe is trying to give her one, and obviously a big one opened up. So that, like, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think th there's something there's something about Miss, absolutely. Okay. Anyway, so we'll lock that in. I'll add that to Pale Predictor as I did for Matt and Scott uh, against <laughs> their will. Right. Um, and and we'll see. I guess how how it ages uh, as the story goes on. Sounds good. Cool. Um, um, what else should we discuss? Gosh, we've been talking about Arc Two for a while. Any other things that we want to talk about? Uh, what about the, uh, obviously, at the end of this arc, we've been introduced to the uh, the Belangers, who mm. seem to seem to be shaping up to be some villains for at least a good chunk of the story, I assume. Um, well, what do we th where do we think that might be going? I, f I feel like Nicolette isn't quite at the level of, like, goodness to be a Kenneteer. Um, she's... She's pretty cold and calculating, but I, I do think that at the end of this story, she will be on the quote-unquote right side, but I don't think that our girls are going to just forgive her for stealing Snowdrop at an opportune time um, right off the bat. I think she's going to be somebody that they will have friction with for a while, and then it will either take a much bigger threat or some serious development on Nicolette's part to become a real ally to the other two. Um, but I, I don't think that the same will happen with Alexander. I think I think we are supposed to think he is somebody who is going to be a, a bad dude for a while. And maybe he's going to have some justification for what he did to Charles, but um, I don't think it'll be particularly ambiguous who was in the wrong mm. there. No, he, he definitely... At this point in time, I've already kind of written out Alexander offers, yeah, like a selfish yeah, asshole. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where Nicolette ends up as because well, I agree, like she's 
she's maybe too deep into it to easily just change sides but that's what I want her to do after her chapter. So well, she is trying to yeah. easily change sides with this other coven. That's right. Um, but but it also shows that she doesn't have a whole lot of loyalty. And I'm not saying that a person needs to be super loyal, but she doesn't mm-hmm. fit in with the rest of our cast at the moment. No, I mean, also to be fair, it would be hard to be loyal to the Blue Heron Institute, the way they treat her. Right. I, I'm willing to forgive oh, oh, for a, sure. a lack of loyalty oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in that situation. <laughs> what I'm saying is she's very pragmatic and, you know, she's not doing things for idealistic reasons. And where she is in her right. life, that's okay. She really just needs to get out of the bad situation she's in. But it also puts her in a completely different position than the other three girls. So, mm. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Oh. And then I'm, I would I'm also, love to see Nicolette join their team. I think that would be great. I'm also. You need the fourth Kennedy. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm pretty sure they they gave a whole spe- speech at the beginning about how triangles are the optimal shape, and <laughs> and anything that screws up the triangle will make things worse. Wait, does that mean Snowdrop? Does Snowdrop count? She's well, in the Snowdrop middle. Will be on the B team. It'll be Snowdrop. Nicolette and I don't know John Styles or something, and they'll be there in separate <laughs> triangle. <laughs> I think it'll. I would. I would read that. Th- that does sound good. I think it'll be really interesting to see how the um, the rest of the others deal with the idea of another practitioner now coming. Like previously, they were they were engaging in ways to try to get the be- Belangers. This is the first time I've said that word out loud. To um, to go away, but now I don't think they can just say, "All right, they're going away," um, or we're, we're going to make them go away. So now they have to get into a real like fighting mode or defensive yeah. mode that is a, a huge step up from where they've been. It really doesn't feel like there's a way that they're just going to get Alexander to be like, "Oh, cool. Well, I'll just leave you alone and not <laughs> yeah. ask any more questions." That just feels yeah. impossible. I think Miss talked about there were like two options. So it's like we either make them like lose interest in us or we kind of have to go to war. And I can't see a way at the end of 2.z that we're not going for the latter. Yeah, right. But that'll be nice. That'll mean we get to see the cathartic murder of Seth and, and all these shitty people. <laughs> hopefully, with, hopefully before Seth does the excruciating murder of one of the characters we care about. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I suppose, is there anything else that we need to, or that we want to talk about? That's all I have. All right. Well, that's, that's us, I guess then. So, um, uh, Jade, do you want to uh, let people know where they can find more of your stuff? Right. So, um, I have a YouTube channel called the octopus literary podcast, which at one point was supposed to be a podcast, but I decided to leave it in video format. Um, there you can find my recently finished series where I, I read Pact called Skimming Over Pact. And then this week I will be starting a significantly shorter series called Skimming Over Pale in which I just give my opinion about how much I love Lucy. So, um, and some <laughs> other things. Um, so that will be awesome. coming out this week and I'm only doing, um, arcs. I really enjoy doing the forest over trees kind of analysis, not particularly getting into the details like you guys, but you know, 
talking about some of the overarching mm. themes of what's been going on and stuff. Um, and after that, I will be reading some other books. So check it out. Thanks for having me. Cool. No worries. Thank yeah. you for coming on. And uh, and finally, we have someone who can represent Lucy on the show. So that's great. <laughs> finally, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh just just a reminder as well that right now we're running a discussion question so uh if you head into the reddit thread you can answer the question now that we've seen some other practitioners do you think the kennedy's got a good or a bad deal in you know how they were awoken mm-hmm. um and you know check out uh give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice check out our twitter at MediaMD podcast for now and you can also uh, go to the Doof Media website, doofmedia.com, to find all the other great shows on the network. Yes, speaking of uh, forests rather than trees, there's uh, Decomposing Worm, which is moving through worm at a much quicker pace than than uh, anyone has done in podcast form before, I think. Uh, so that's definitely worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'd like to support the network, you can go to patreon.com forward slash doofmedia and become a patron. Yep, and don't forget to stop by Wabo's Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wabo. He writes all these stories. Yep. Not just Pale, but uh, he also wrote Pact, and uh, as we did with Matt and Scott, I think it'd be cool to do a little back to Pact with Jade, especially since she just finished the story. Yep. Um, talk a bit about Pact and, and how it compares to Pale and all that. So if you have not read Pact, now would be the time to mark this episode as listened. Uh, <laughs> but for, the, yep. for the rest of us. Uh, should we talk about some pact? Hell yeah. The the bonus after outro content. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, I guess let's compare pact and pale, I suppose. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. So I just finished pact like last week and I'm still in this kind of like packed haze where every time I watch a movie, I'm like, yes, but it's not packed, you know? And, um, <laughs> yep. yeah. But Pale is, like, close enough to Pact that I can feel like I'm kind of reading Pact close enough. Um, And I can actually focus on what's happening and pretty much just dismiss my expectations from Pact. With one exception. The fucking fairy. Every time they come on screen, (laughs) I'm like, what are these people up to? They, They just plain equals evil in my mind yeah i cannot separate my hatred and distrust of them from whatever's going on on screen i think it's great that wabo decided to have fairy as major characters again because i feel like i like you know meta narratively i have to expect them to not be as evil as portrick was and as manipulative (laughs) like they're still obviously manipulative but they're like roughly on the same team and so i'm hoping that they're not going to be such shit bags yeah i mean that, that's the wrinkle and we, we sort of touched on this earlier in the episode but like they are in theory bound to be on like you know on the same team yeah as the kenneteers and presumably as members of this like commune they're bound in some to some degree to not like hurt the town or anything so i, I just can't Oh god! I activated Siri. Um, <laughs> it's a anyway, plot. It's a fairy uh, plot. <laughs> the fairies are after me. Um, no, I, I can't. Like, I can't reconcile them being a genuine part of this town and of the Kennedys awakening with my image of the fairy. Like, I just can't bring myself to not believe there's some end ga- horrible endgame they have for everyone. Yeah. Um, 
but I, at the same time i don't want to ascribe them too much like i don't want to believe that they're pulling everyone's strings so effectively like mm. right I, yeah i don't know i definitely feel like they have goals that are like oblique to the plot right they they may be mm. screwing stuff up but i don't think it's as far as they killed the carmine beast or anything like that i think they're just doing their own thing and yeah their own thing is probably really bad but it probably has nothing to do with what anybody else is doing. Yeah. It's just like, I, I kind of want to get their backstory. Like, how did they end up here? Because all the fairy we saw in Jacob's Bell were either familiars or banished. Right. And I don't think, we haven't been told that Guillaume or Marisico were banished. Right. So what what are they doing here? And Padraic was always like, yeah, I hate being in this podunk town. Nothing ever happens here. I want to go to Toronto where things are exciting. So if Guillerme and Marisica weren't banished, what are they doing in this town, which is a, a yes. much less exciting than Jacob's Bell? Maybe yeah, not much really less exciting, point, but... but it's much smaller. Yeah. It, no, I, I think it would be more boring than Jacob's Bell, certainly like when Pact was going on. Right. Um, but even even before Pact, like Jacob's Bell had, you know, all these practitioners in the schools they could fuck with. Right. Like I don't... Yeah, what are they? Wait, why are they here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't believe that they're just like yeah, we're the chill fairies and we like to live in caves because they don't even present themselves that way. Mm, maybe that's their dark secret. They actually are just fucking bored, <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to convince everyone that they're not. That's their that's mm. their defense mechanism: just being fairy and allowing people to believe <laughs> that they are just that suspicious. <laughs> Yeah, Nicolette's going to show up in Kennet and Guillermo's going to be like, oh, fuck, nobody's ever actually called my bluff before. Oh, no, I'm going to have to torture her or something, but I don't want to. I don't believe no. that, but it would be I, great. I, yeah. <laughs> he, if they had to do it and they didn't want to, I I feel like at most they would see it as a mild inconvenience um, to, to torture somebody. Yeah. Um, but I always... I, I, I don't doubt for a second Marisica would fucking love it. Yeah. Guillaume, maybe. Maybe not. Like, if, if he's actually able to get along with John, who seems so straightforward. Like, John talks about how he doesn't really love the fairy and he gets along with the goblins who communicate mm. on kind of the same wavelength as him. Um, but if John's able to tolerate going on these short missions with Guillaume, I feel like there must be tolerable aspects to his personality. Hmm. Also, see, he he he's summer court. I don't get the impression anyone except maybe uh, was it Latita who had the big sword early in Pact, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, that might be the only other summer fairy right. that we've seen. Like, yeah, I, I don't get the impression Guillermo's from the same type or from the same cast as um, Pordrig and all that. Right. So maybe that is just enough of a difference that he's not terrible on the same level. And I think you're right, but here's the thing about Latita. She impersonated Joanna's little Joanna's um, familiar for a couple of years, and and played sure. along with the whole child stealing thing. Mm. So yeah, if, she's, so we she's can't not really hold her up as an example of a great fairy, <laughs> right. can we? <laughs> Very good point. But she was they're just they're, they're... Ex- she was also being sent there as punishment, um, mm. which we found yes, out in true. his in Podrick's interlude. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and speaking of characters that we need to get more info, what's the deal with Toad Swallow? <laughs> There's something I've I'm gonna die on this hill. There's something up with Toad Swallow. Maybe he's, he's the always, secret practitioner. He's always <laughs> listed as separate from the other goblins. I don't I don't trust him. Or or maybe the opposite. Maybe I really do trust him, which I probably shouldn't. I I trust I him more info weirdly. Um his whole demeanor when he was first introduced where he was like treating the kids as or treating the girls as kids and saying you know i'm gonna i'm gonna introduce myself as toad swallow that's not my real name i don't know i just trusted it for some reason even though i have red packed and am supposed to be conditioned to not trust goblins (laughs) but i also apparently toad swallow was in poke and Mm -hmm. yet so Okay, yeah, he he makes a short appearance there, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. He just he does seem different to the, all the other goblins that we've met. I think so to some degree. Like, how many other goblins would PG thirteenify themselves? Yeah, he just seems uh, to have impulse control, right? Like that's right. the yes. weirdest thing about it to me. <laughs> is he? Is, is it possible that he's like a like a goblin bogeyman? You know, or maybe yeah, not a bogeyman, else. but like he underwent some kind of experience that changed him from. Instead of changing him from being human, changed him from being the default goblin. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the other theory I've I've sort of toyed with is he so like goblins. We've talked about how their labels change in Pale, and like goblins sort of represent you know all the the worst impulses of humanity. Like, I wonder if he's a just a new type of goblin. Like, there's some some new aspect to humanity. Like, you know, he's he, he's running a business, right? He's a very capitalist goblin like is that is that part of the angle is he is he everything that's like or does he is he representative of like bad business practices and that's just a new type of goblin or something maybe but he's not having bad business practices right i mean i mean yeah that's true he actually runs he has a a fairly decent business yeah (laughs) Hmm, yeah good point anyway something along those lines then but you're right He, he his business, I, I think I made this joke in, in the episode, it's, his business has run more ethically than some real life ones, so <laughs> it can't be that. Yeah. <sighs> um, any other packed spoiler-related stuff that we want to talk about? Okay, so Alexander Belanger reads, does the tarot reading for the girls yes. and Snowball. Snow, Snowdrop. Yeah. I can't believe I called her Snowball. Um, Snowdrop. <laughs> and... So they are the, and I don't know whether it's one card for each of them or the four cards for the group as a whole, but they are the Empress at the front, Strength at the back, Chariot at the left, and Fool at the right. And the significance of this that made me pull this out and put it in the packed section is that Blake and Rose were the Fool and the Chariot. Mm. Respectively, they're- the hands that correspond here. And while I don't think we're getting any specific like Blake and Rose callback or, or callback to the real live Blake and Rose in in this reading, I think that we can make some judgments from the fact that those cards were drawn, assuming I can understand what the heck these tarot cards mean, because I Googled it and tarot cards, man. Yes, they're quite interpretive, aren't they? 
Um, I was yes. I'll I'll defer to Ruben on on any potential tarot card talk. So I was looking through this, and the thing that's interesting to me about it is usually tarot cards have the idea of being upright or reversed, right? Right. Um, and whether Nicolette just doesn't know this or doesn't kind of interpret it, she she doesn't call out which direction they're facing, and that seems to change what they could mean. So, for example, the Empress. Something that's interesting to me is um, if the Empress is reversed it or the, the empress kind of relates to a lot of like familial bonds uh or and positive familial bonds specifically which is something that i don't think applies to any of the kennetiers except probably lucy um but if it's reversed it re- it relates to like you know familial bonds being a huge drain on you and and really weighing you down which i think applies quite nicely to verona so it made me think that there's actually a dimension to these cards and the reading of these cards that we just didn't get to see intentionally those being hidden from us to prevent us from reading too much into them right. is my gut reaction. The other thing about this is that in Pact, we never got upright and reversed. Like, we saw what cards Alistair was drawing during certain fights mm. and stuff, and it was just the Two of Cups or the Five mm. of Swords or whatever. Mm. And then when we heard the the readings for Blake and Rose at the beginning, they just said chariot and high priestess and fool. I'm sorry, chariot and hanged man and fool hanged and man, high right? priestess. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I think didn't didn't the left and right hands kind of map? To yeah, possibly. And Again, a bit. It, it, it was kind of an original tarot style that that Robert had come up with. I think so. It's. It's it is hard to map them, so I, I don't know. I'm kind of um, I'm on the fence about how much we should read into it because I feel like there's an aspect that Nicolette doesn't understand of it that that means we don't have all the info. Yeah, but I I did also find it interesting that we do get the same like that. You're right that these are basically the same set of cards with strength. I think is a different one, and is that it? Oh, Empress. I don't think right. we've seen the other one. Um, but the the but chariot yeah. and the fool were the primary hands for each of them because the chariot yes. is the conquest hand basically was what the the mm. witch said this is the this is the hand that you use when you're trying to win which conquest and then the fool was the thing that says that you can be the highest or lowest yes so yeah yeah well the fool was kind of the protagonist card wasn't it yeah i think so so yeah, it makes sense that it applies to the the Kennedys, I suppose. It also relates to like innocence a lot, um, which is yep. the Kennedy read that I got from it. Of like they're very new to this world; they're kind of uh, you know unaware in a lot of ways, I guess. But I don't know. There, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to it. It's so interpretive that it's hard to be like, yes, this is what it's saying. Yeah, I think that's what's fun about it, though. Like these tarot things, they give you little snippets of information about the characters but you're not sure what to do with them right it's fun yeah it's it's so vague i'm not good with the stuff that's this vague but (laughs) i look forward to going back and reading this next year and going ah i understand we'll we'll get another witch explaining it to us hopefully in a few (laughs) hours hopefully um maybe uh Maybe Nicolette's very real uh, coven will come and explain things for mm-hmm. us. Speaking of which, I don't know if this means anything, but the only coven that we know of is the Duchamp coven. Mm-hmm. I don't know what 
that actually meant? Does that mean that they're all enchantresses or does that mean they're all women? I've, I've taken the interpretation all women because yes. that was what Nicolette talked about with, um, uh, with this other Olga group. Was the Sisters um, of the Torch described as a coven? No. I can't remember. I don't, think, I they don't think they were. Right, okay. But I, maybe there's, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. I mean, I, like something we, we haven't really talked about in this episode was like, you know, this idea that Nicolette is in this, she's the only woman in the circle that we see, right? Right. Like all the others are men. So, but I don't think circle meant all men in the Bahame case because there were women right. involved. So Yeah. I, and I'm not sure if, so Nicolette did say that there were other people missing. Um, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like there are an abundance of women, but it also didn't seem like Nicolette is the first Belanger woman or yeah. anything. Um, yeah, yeah, true. So it seems like it's just a rare yeah. occurrence or, or maybe, um, see, I, I see situations like this differently because I went to engineering school and most of the time I was the only girl in the class, mm. whatever. And, and the vast majority of the time I had no problems whatsoever. There were a few incidents here and there, but for the most part it was fine. They were my classmates, but I feel like in this situation, because all these boys are little shitheads, a girl comes in and she goes, wow, I don't want to be here. And she'll either give up or find a way to leave or just crack under pressure. Um, Anyway, maybe that's what this other auger coven is, is all the women who have gone there and realized, hey, I don't want to be in this shitty, toxic environment. Let's go do our own thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's the thing. Nicolette talks in a whole chapter about, oh, it's going to be great when I go to the covens. No, it's not. I bet you they, I bet you they're mm, just as toxic true. in their own way. Right. Um, I refuse to believe that there's this perfect life just over the sunset for her, um, especially given what we know about Pact. Um, right. I don't believe that there's just this nice coven around the corner. I mean, if you are, if the one we have to compare it to is the Duchamps, um, yeah, I mean, not setting a great precedent for what covens are like. Yeah. So, yeah. Or the uh, the, the Sisters of the Torch, while they were probably the, the best group to be a part of, they were not exactly portrayed as the, the good guys, you know. Well, yeah, they had moments where they would, like, take people and force them to not force them but you know it basically felt like they were in the army reserves and then they suddenly went to war and everyone's life right. got completely upended right yeah mm. you have to drop everything and and help out with this situation and of course they didn't deal with the actual problems and blamed everybody else or, yep or rather refused <sighs> to see it as a problem do you think this story is going to become as grim as pact jade no uh, but but yeah. then again, I I have been in a lot of conversations or have read a lot of threads that Wildbo commented in. So I have this idea of it being not as dark, but also that could just be Wildbo pulling a funny prank on us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <sighs> maybe maybe yeah. he sat back and laughed when he heard you say, when he, he heard you ask that question. Um, but no, I, yeah. I don't think it'll ever get as, as dark just because the girls at least have each other or, mm-hmm. or some of the others. Like if, if they, if they get into a genuine disagreement that breaks them apart, 
I don't think that all three of them will ever be completely isolated. Um, yeah. Blake was. Yeah, I mean, compare having compare having the two other Kennedys on your side to having a Blake or a Rose on your side. Um, yeah. A huge improvement. Right. And and Blake was really miserable for a while, but we were always in his perspective. And even though I feel like Avery's in a bad situation, and and yeah, that situation may end up rivaling the heaviness of Blake's experiences in the, the abyss. Maybe it will, but we still have the changing setting by going back and forth between three girls, um, and we have the rest of the cast around to kind of keep the tone at a level that's going to end up being a bit higher just by virtue of the format. Yeah. I think this is also meant to be a bit of a shorter story. Like what'll be interesting is Pact went places I never would have predicted a couple of arcs in. Um, and the same is true of Worm. Right. Um, I wonder if Pale's going to be one of those things where we look at it in arc four or five and it's like, holy shit, how did we get here from like, you know, from a murder mystery, three, three, three girls, you know, hanging out in their small town doing some magical runes. Yeah. I mean, we were, we talked at the beginning of the episode about how long ago it seems that Verona turned into a cat. Yeah. (laughs) And now, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, but I can't see this story going so down the garden path because it is meant to be a, a shorter story. I don't know. I can't imagine it going more than like, I can't imagine it tra- radically transforming as many times as even Pact did where it had like three or four major like shifts in the dynamics of the story. Right. Where? Do- I mean, it doesn't have to have that many to, to blow my mind. Sure. Yeah. Do you think at... The end of this, the girls will have mostly retained their humanity, or I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's naive to say that, but I do hope so. I just want them to have happy endings, right? Like, is that so much to ask? <laughs> I, I would be interested to see a scenario where maybe like Verona hasn't, but it's not a bad thing. Yeah, like Verona's um, an other, but in a way that I've come to, you know, reconcile or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that is a question that is kind of being circled around, you know, from the from seeing the girls' home home lives almost every chapter to the conversation with M- Marisica about I already screwed up her name again um, about you know how they were selected because they are closer to being other. I think this question mm. of how human they will end up being is something that will end up being addressed pretty heavily by the end of the story, especially since they literally wear animal masks and the people who see the animal masks can't see past the masks and only see them as deer or cats or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You're right. That feels important. Yeah. I guess we'll see. Um, Any other final notes before we wrap it up here? I just want to say that last book we had an eight year old kid familiar and that was why when we introduced Snowdrop, I went, oh, no, we can't have another yeah. eight-year-old kid familiar. It's probably not going to. Yeah, exactly. Yes, we can. I think Wabo's not going to pull the same trick twice. I mean, we can, <laughs> yes, quote, unquote, you know, in the I don't know, can you way. But, um, yeah. Mm, if it had, yeah, if, I agree. If she'd been no, six I, or ten. Um, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, I'm... Once again, going to refuse to acknowledge any series of events that does not lead to Snowdrop being involved and becoming a familiar or something like that. Mm, we'll see. 
I mean, yeah, we'll see. <sighs> Poor Snowdrop. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's the end of the show. Any other final thoughts, folks? I'm, I'm good. All right. Well, with that, goodbye. Goodbye.